0: Anyways, um, good morning to you all. Glad to see you. We have been uh, walking with Jesus, so to speak, through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, At the end of February, just four weeks from now, we'll enter into the last week of the life of Jesus that's recorded in uh, Mark's Gospel from about chapter 11 through to 16. And so we're going to just slow the pace a little bit. We're going to spend probably like those 40 days of Lent slowing the pace and absorbing that last week of the life of Jesus before finishing this series on uh, Easter Sunday, April 12th. But today's passage that Lynn so wonderfully read for us, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 37, it forces us to examine our attitudes, especially in the context of how we view others or how we interact with the others around us. And I can safely say that in my life, I think the single greatest tool that God has used to transform my own attitudes is through my daily interactions with others. It's just an ongoing process, right? We never fully arrive, we never are fully established, but it is in the context of those relationships that we learn so much about who we are and God reveals things in our lives that aren't often always that pretty, some of you know my story. I was born and raised here in Edmonton. I graduated from high school here. I went straight from high school into the University of Alberta, uh, finished uh, a science degree there, and then went straight into seminary because in my last semester of, of, uh, of my studies at university, I felt this call to ministry. And so I attended what is now Taylor Seminary just down the, down the road on 23rd Avenue there. I graduated, I was 25 years old, I moved to Calgary, and there I served in my first full-time ministry role. And through all that time, I was single. I, uh, it was all about me. I had well-established patterns that suited me just fine. I did what I wanted to do, I ate what I wanted to eat, I watched what I wanted to watch. I was only responsible for myself myself. And I realized, looking back at that season in my life, that I far too often thought only about myself. I had my own apartment. A year later, I bought my own house. And that summer, I met Tina at a conference in Chicago. Some of you may remember an old hymn. It's kind of catchy, called, Since Jesus Came Into My Heart. You kind of remember that? You have to kind of be of the—well, I I don't want to say how old you have to be to to remember that, but— um, it's kind of catchy, and it talks really about the change that we might experience through relationship with Jesus, and ultimately the joy that comes since Jesus came into my heart or since Jesus comes into my life. Well, I used to kind of have fun with that and turn it around. Since Tina came into my heart, um, there was a lot of joy in my heart, but a lot of change too. And so we got married in September of 94, and she moved to Calgary, and literally everything changed. I mean, everything changed. The chocolate brown countertops in the house that I chose needed to be replaced. The awful linoleum, this dark, ugly pattern—it's gone too. You know that mirrored wall in the basement that looked like something out of the—you know—a 70s bar. Um, not that I was in many bars in the 70s. Um, <laughs> I waited till the 80s. For, no. Um, <laughs> Um, you know, that had to go. I had my dining room table was a folding Ikea table with white plastic folding chairs. And Tina didn't think that was sufficient. And so in a good way, suddenly all these changes, and I have to tell you, in the end they were great. Tina's a great decorator, but but in my mind I'm like, oh, like I felt a little bit like she was challenging my tastes and I picked out this house, and, and and it was just these little things sometimes. You know what I mean, right? Like, if you've been single for a long time, and then you get into a relationship, suddenly now it's all about learning how to function in this new normal, right? This new context. Well, three years later, we moved to Armprior, and then our first son was born. Our only son, actually, but our first child. And uh, more changes, right? Like. Now you have to change diapers, you have to feed, and, and, and so the baby's crying, and Tina says, you know, can you go change his diapers, and you can't just say, well, you know what, can I just wait till intermission? Like, <laughs> you, you, it just doesn't work that way. And then Anna came along. Now it's like one-on-one, con- divide and conquer. We moved back to Edmonton in March of 2009, and two years ago, I finally relented to 10 years of relentless pressure to get a dog. And um, no, 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 it's actually good. She's wonderful, and, and, and Tina will say, you know, Norb is the one that will say, oh, man, love you, Macy. Um, but I have to admit, like, I did not want a dog. This was going to be an inconvenience in our lives, and suddenly, you no, know, I don't want to get up off the couch and open the door so you can go out and do your business. It's just, it's an inconvenience. But whether it's in the context of marriage or family or ministry or even community, like even with your neighbors, those are the places and the people that I believe God uses to reveal our hearts and expose our attitudes. And when they are revealed for what they really are, usually transformation is not that far behind. Well... It's in the context of relationships and human interactions that we have opportunity to live out the words of Jesus. Whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. And it's everyone else That you now have to consider. It's not just me or myself or mine, but now it's us and ourselves and ours. And we're forced to look beyond ourselves and to put others ahead of ourselves. And everything in us hates it. We want to resist it, we rebel against it because we're hardwired to be self centered. I mean, isn't it all about me? No. (laughs) No, it isn't. And Jesus says that the right attitude is not to put yourself first, but to, in fact, be the very last, to be a servant of all. A call to follow Jesus is, in fact, a call to radical servanthood that's the message that Jesus wanted to leave with his disciples, and it's a message for us today. And so I want to dive into this. I'm just going to give you three words that we'll kind of hang our hats on and move through this passage. But first is just the word introduction, and then instruction, and then illustration. So first, the introduction. In verses 30 to 32, Jesus reveals to us the context of this event in his life. They had been in the villages around uh, Caesarea Philippi, it's in the north, that's probably where they had climbed uh, Mount Hermon, which was the probable site of the transfiguration. And now Mark tells us that they left that region that was up in the north, to the north of the Sea of Galilee, and they came south, passing back through the area of Galilee. And in this movement, Jesus clearly is now on a mission. This is a turning point in his life and ministry. He's now heading towards Jerusalem, towards the cross. It's his final journey. And he knows that that, that time is short, and he needs to really bear down and teach and equip his disciples, because after he's gone, he's going to trust them to continue to make more disciples. So not surprisingly, we read the end of verse 30 and verse 31. He says, Jesus didn't want anyone to know that he was there. Okay, He wanted this to kind of be under the radar, to be stealthy. And he wanted to spend more time with the disciples and teach them. You see, up until this point, as we've been journeying through this, we've seen the crowds that had been distracting him from teaching the disciples. And so understandably, he wanted some privacy and, and some space. So you can picture this Jesus and his disciples they're walking along the dusty road I kind of imagine at times maybe it's a it's a single track and 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 then at times it moves up opens a little wider at certain spots and then maybe they gather instead of kind of being single file they're they're gathering in twos and threes and they're having this conversation and they're walking side by side and they're talking amongst themselves and in this context as they're walking Jesus says to them well oh, by the way guys The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of enemies. He will be killed, but three days later, he will rise from the dead. So this is now the second time that Jesus predicts his own death in the Gospel of Mark. The first time was in the previous chapter, chapter 8, and verse 31 and 32. At that time, Peter, who had just confidently declared that Jesus was the Messiah, he took Jesus aside and he kind of tried to rebuke him, to set him straight. And he said, you know, listen, Jesus, no one is going to kill you. You're the conquering Messiah that we were expecting. Well, that didn't work out so well for Peter because Jesus, in front of all the other disciples, he rebukes Peter and had some very strong words for him. He says to him, get behind me, Satan. Think about that. That's a strong response to this. And he kind of puts Peter in his place. And then he went on to say, he says, Peter, listen, here's the problem. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In other words, Peter, you're only thinking of yourself. Me talking about my suffering, my rejection, my death, and yes, even my resurrection, it isn't jiving with your understanding of the Messiah. And listen, Peter, my Messiahship is going to be marked by humility and self-giving service. And clearly, Jesus knew that his disciples still did not understand what was going to happen to him. And so here as they're walking along this dusty road, he tells them again. He's trying to prepare them for what is inevitably going to happen. He's trying to get them to understand that God was intending to have his son Jesus die, that it was all part of God's plan. And Mark makes it clear that the disciples still didn't understand what Jesus was saying. It was going over their heads and, he's, and Mark records this and says, they were afraid to ask him what he meant. I mean, we look at them and we just kind of think, I mean, how dense could you be? I mean, but then again, friends, we have the advantage of looking at God's Word and studying God's Word and looking back in hindsight, in a sense, on these events. They didn't have that. But there were all of these times where Jesus kept trying to communicate, listen, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. This is what I'm going to do. How are you going to respond to that? But they were afraid. I'm not exactly sure why they were afraid. Maybe they just didn't want to hear the answer. Maybe they remember that, how Jesus scolded Peter the last time. Maybe they just didn't get it again and, and truly didn't get it, and they're kind of embarrassed. I mean, he's saying this again. What does that really mean? We didn't know last time? Well, whatever their reason for fear, it became an obstacle to their learning. And fear is like that. It, it, it ties us up. It restricts us. It, it, it prevents us and keeps us from discovering truth or working things out. I mean, we can be afraid of so many things, and they just become obstacles or hindrances to us. It keeps us from speaking out. It it keeps us, um, because we might be, you know, afraid of of being embarrassed. And in their mind, they're probably thinking, you know, Jesus, he's talking about this crazy stuff again, about dying and rising again. But I'm not going to ask him what he means. You ask him what he means. I'm not going to ask him. You ask him. And they're going back and forth and pointing the fingers. But friends, God and Jesus, he, he can handle our misunderstanding. He can handle it when we don't get it. He can handle it when we have to come to him and say, Jesus, can you help me understand this? I don't know what to make of this. And whether it's his word that you're studying and there's, that you need some insight, you can ask him for insight. And through the, through the Holy Spirit, we'll reveal that truth to you. But maybe there's a situation in your life that you can't figure out. It doesn't make sense to you. And you're asking Jesus, help, help me understand what's going on here. And so again, it just comes back to the importance of prayer. That we are invited into a relationship with the God of the universe. That we can have a conversational relationship with. That we can bring to Him our needs and our concerns and our fears and all of these things, and we just bring them to Him, and we interact with Him, we relate with Him, and we listen closely for what He's saying to us. So that's really just the introduction to setting the scene for what's about now to take place, and that's the instruction. The next three verses, verses 33 to 35, contain the key instruction of Jesus in this passage. And so they're coming down from Caesarea Philippi. They arrive in Capernaum. They go into a house. It's likely Peter's, and it's within the four walls that Jesus privately instructs his disciples. He has an important lesson to teach them, and no doubt he had heard some of what the disciples were talking about as they walked along, but He's also God, and so he knows what they're thinking about without them even saying a word. He knows their hearts. He knows exactly what's going on, and now they're face-to-face in the privacy of Peter's when he asks them, what were you guys talking about on the road? Sometimes I'll just randomly, maybe I'm with Tina, and it's just been quiet for a while, and I'll just randomly say, what are you thinking about? And sometimes it kind of catches her by surprise, and sometimes she'll do, do the same. And really, you should try it. I mean, all of a sudden, you're kind of arrested in your thoughts. What, what am I thinking about? And sometimes it's just like nothing, right, guys? Um, anyway, the disciples, they don't answer Jesus' question. What are you talking about? Silence. Why? Mark tells us why, so we don't have to figure it out. Because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. But they were arguing about which one of them was the greatest. Busted, right? It's kind of embarrassing. So there's this embarrassed silence. Because while Jesus was talking about his upcoming betrayal, his death and his resurrection, all the disciples could think about was what was the pecking order going to be in the kingdom that Jesus was going to establish. That's how off they were in their thinking. Jesus is facing humiliation on a cross and all the disciples were concerned about is which of them was greater than the others. They were preoccupied by position they were preoccupied with prestige and there's no greater contrast between the self-giving of jesus and the self-centeredness of the disciples because they still thought jesus was going to be an earthly king and they were concerned about their place and their position in that kingdom and so they were arguing about it you can almost hear them can't you One of them goes, well, I'm, I'm pretty great. I'm greater. I'm the greatest. And, and then maybe James says, well, clearly it has to be, you know, one of us, Peter, James, and John. I mean, we're kind of Jesus' favorites already, you know. We're closer to Jesus than, than any one of you. I mean, who's going to remember you? I mean, 2,000 years from now, who's going to remember Bartholomew? <laughs> Thaddeus. Good luck with that. Peter's probably, like, just listening to this all going on. He goes, listen, guys, let me just end the argument right here. I am the greatest. Jesus calls him out. What were you arguing about? And there's this awkward silence. But Jesus sees this as a teachable moment. It's time for some instruction. He's got his work cut out to get them ready. So he sits down, it's the traditional position of a a rabbi who's going to teach his disciples. He calls the disciples over, and they gather in front of him, and then he breaks this silence. One sentence to teach the essence of true greatness. Whoever wants to be first must take last place and be a servant of everyone else. In Jewish culture, status was incredibly important. Rank was important because status had a way of honor, and that's why the disciples were so hardwired to think about this this ordering system, this rank, this social order. And, and, And so... They're arguing about who's the greatest, but Jesus takes the idea of greatness and turns it on its head because Jesus was all about an upside down kingdom. And so he makes this radical statement in that first century culture and in ours. Because this statement that the first must be the very last and a servant of all, it was and absolutely is countercultural. Because our natural human instinct is to want to be first. We want to win. We want to be recognized. And Jesus comes in and speaks truth, a hard truth into that, and says, listen, true greatness, simply put, is servanthood. Cheryl Backelder, she's the CEO of Popeye's Louisiana Chicken. Popeye's is popping up all over the city of Edmonton. Have you tried it? Oh, come on! You will after this story. So she turned this company around with a focus specifically on serving others. She's a committed Christian, takes her Christianity into her workplace, She's the author of Dare to Serve, How to Drive Superior Results by Serving Others. And in a recent interview, she shared her thoughts on servanthood. And this is what she said. Listen to this. The Bible verse that's on my calendar every day is Philippians 2, verse 3. Because I haven't found one that's more paramount to how I want to lead in my family and in my work. And that is, quote, this is the verse, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. I really like the choice of words around counting others more significant than yourselves. Listen to this, she goes. "I believe we're all born with an inner two-year-old, and we'd really still like to be laying on the floor, kicking and screaming because we didn't get the candy bar we wanted. It's pretty hardwired that we're self-absorbed little people, and we learn to fake it well, but we're still pretty much that two-year-old on the inside. I love that. We're that little two-year-old on the inside. She goes, I find that biblical perspective really challenging in every aspect of my day how I'm spending my time, the decisions that I make, to put them through a filter of whether I'm thinking about myself or whether I'm thinking about others. Am I doing this because I'll get a bigger bonus check? Or am I really thinking about the long-term interest of this company? Am I doing this truly for my franchise owners, or am I getting some personal benefit that I haven't been willing to acknowledge? Those kinds of provocative, self-mirror questions hold you to a higher standard. I always say servant leadership is an aspiration, because you can really never claim you've arrived, because as soon as you do, someone will find you in a trap of self-interest. It's something you're always working toward. So the point is, eat more Popeye's chicken. (laughs) Now, the point is, do we approach everything that we do with a mindset, "Am I thinking about myself?" or am I thinking about others? So what this instruction leads us to do, I believe, is come before God and have him examine our hearts, just to, to ask Him to search our hearts. When we are serving, are we serving humbly? Ask yourself, well, what happens if I don't get recognized by by my service? Do I get upset? Do I get annoyed that nobody patted me on the back? Friends, this surfaces in us one of those ugly things, that ugly sin called pride, doesn't it? And if it does, when we think about how we view others or how we treat others, then we need to be able to confess our pride. Can we admit that sometimes we do, in fact, act like a two-year-old? So once we examine our hearts, then we can respond and we can say, you know what? I want to live my life in a way that I am thinking about others. I want to put others first. I'm going to look for ways to help others, to serve. And that's what Jesus was just instructing his disciples on. Listen, you want to make a world-changing difference in this world? Put others ahead of yourself. That's his instruction. So he illustrates it like a good teacher, this point of radical servanthood in verses 36 and 37. He says, Jesus takes now a little child, perhaps it's maybe even one of Peter's children. He takes this child in his arms and he says this, anyone who welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my father who sent me. See, while we don't want to be like a two-year-old throwing a tantrum, Jesus wonderfully illustrates his point of servanthood by showing to the disciples a little child. It's show-and-tell time. We don't know how old the child is. It doesn't really matter. But what we can easily miss here is when we read an English translation is that Jesus would have been speaking in Aramaic. That was the native tongue. And in Aramaic, the word for child and for servant is, in fact, the same word. And so Jesus was actually saying to his disciples, here, look at this servant. Welcome this servant. Because if you do, you welcome me, and not only me, but my Father as well. Open your arms and receive them, just like I did. Don't be childish, but be childlike. And how does a child come? They come with no pretension. They come with no thoughts of greatness. They, they have no accomplishments, no influence. They have no accomplishments. Uh, they, they have no fame, no fortune, no resume, no achievements to, to brag about. And in the Jewish culture, children, honestly, were just the lowest rank. And so Jesus just takes the child and says, Here, you need to know what servanthood looks like. Welcome this child and be more like this child? See, rather than arguing about greatness, rather than demonstrating unbridled ambition, rather than showing jealousy or judging or, or being suspicious, are we okay to be last and a servant of all? And you know where this really plays out? It, it, happened, it, it would happen in a situation where maybe you thought that you were in line for a promotion at work and somebody else gets that promotion. What does that stir in your heart? That's the question. See, when we feel like we've been overlooked and we deserve the recognition, it's going to be hard for us to rejoice for that person. But if we can't, It starts to reveal that Jesus is transforming the attitude of our heart and recognizing that it's not about me, it's about serving others. Can you imagine, I just wonder, what would happen in all of our relationships, at work, at home, in our communities, if we assumed, first and foremost, the position of servant? Instead of seeking to be served and to be first, we embraced this True greatness of radical servanthood. And Jesus himself is a great illustration of this illustration. (laughs) Right? That's what he modeled. He modeled radical servanthood. Mark 10, verse 45 says this For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, that's the example that we have to follow. And if you need more, Jesus in John 13, and if probably what's fairly familiar, if, you, if, you've, if you've been reading your Bibles over time, you know that in John chapter 13, Jesus takes a towel and a basin of water, and he gets down before his disciples, and he washes their feet. And he uses the towel that he wrapped around himself to dry his disciples' feet. You may remember that Peter thinks that this act of service on Jesus' behalf is beneath Jesus. And so they have this exchange, and well, eventually Jesus washes Peter's feet too. And Judas, even though he already knew it would be Judas who would betray him, think about that. Jesus washed the feet of the one who would betray him. He truly was a servant of all. And in John chapter 13, verse 13 to 15, we read these words. He says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. You see, servanthood does not mean abdicating authority, it's an attitude of the heart, it impacts the way that we treat people especially the people that technically might be, you know, beneath us. We need to ask ourselves the question that the CEO of Popeye's Kitchen asked herself, am I thinking about myself or am I thinking about others? What if every day when we were getting dressed, we imagine wrapping a towel around our waists? how would we approach our children? How would our teenagers approach the parents? How might we relate to one another in a marriage relationship? What happens when we go to work, and I'm, I'm imagining that I've got a towel around, and I'm here to serve? What difference is it going to make? Because what if it really isn't about being served, but being a servant— What if it really isn't about being first but about being last? What if it really isn't about titles and credentials and experience but about assuming a position of radical servanthood? Friends, I got a whole bunch of ways that we could apply this, but think about the interactions that you have on a day-to-day basis, whether it's at work, whether it's at church, whether it's in your community, whether it's in your home, wherever it is, recognize that there is a place for us to live out this truth. And what if, what if our attitude really was to be radical servants? What if the way that we thought and felt about others was to put them first and for us to assume the position of servant of all? What if we had big hearts and not big heads? Humility instead of pride. I'm going to invite you to stand, and I'm going to read a passage from Philippians chapter 2. We'll close with this. The worship team, you can already come. And I really would like you just to close your eyes. Maybe you've heard this passage before and it's familiar. Maybe it isn't. But I want you to just very clearly hear these words that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippian church. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. The same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, Attitude really is everything.